Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, sponsored by Filson and eFish. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today we are going to talk about getting great fish to you. And so one of the things I hear all the time, especially from people who live in the middle of the country, is that I don't really eat fish and seafood because I can't really get quality fish and seafood to me. And in the last 10 years or so, plus or minus, there have been some innovative ways of cracking that code, sort of breaking the supermarket chain so that you can get absolutely pristine fish to your house, whether you live in Des Moines or New Orleans or Kennebunkport or South Sacramento. So the two biggest and most interesting methods for this are the community supported agriculture, you know, kind of a CSA, you know, where you get your vegetables every week and you pick them up. Well, in coastal regions, you are starting to see this with fish and seafood. So there's a great one in San Francisco. There's a good ones in New England. And we're going to talk to Natalie Sattler of Alaskans Own. It's kind of amazing if you think about it, because Alaska is one of the great great, great places for fish and seafood. And yet many people living inland or even in coastal communities that do not have a connection to a fisherman can get really good seafood. So Alaskans Own is the answer for that. And it's the same thing. You sign up for a share and then when you do, you get you know, a box of fish and seafood, whatever people are catching that particular week. And when they're not catching things, they have frozen fish and seafood so that you are supplied throughout the year. And this is a model that exists all over the country in the Gulf, in the Atlantic states, in the Pacific, and even in some places in the Midwest where there's a Great Lakes fishery. The other method, and this is a method that works anywhere in the United States, is the fisherman to table kind of shipper guys. And there's lots of them. And many are based in Alaska, just like Alaskan Zone. But the one, it happens to be one of the sponsors of this show, which is eFish. And what they do is they're essentially a broker that works directly with fishermen of all varieties all over the United States. And they feature, well, you name it. I have had everything from whelks to monkfish to swordfish. So not just super glamorous species, but often bycatch. And this is a great way for a consumer to actually help maintain sustainable fisheries by working with these products. And now I'm not going to tell you that a product or service like eFish is inexpensive, but what it is, is it's an opportunity to A, help American fishermen, and it B, you get it directly from them, and C, the quality is second to none. So this is a service that you might want to be interested in for some kind of a special dinner, a date, a holiday, that sort of thing. And it is a great option. So without further ado, let's talk to Jeffrey Ted Mori of eFish and Natalie Sattler of Alaskan Zone to talk a little bit more about how in the modern age, we are getting pristine fish and seafood to your doorstep. Natalie Sattler and Jeffrey Ted Mori, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am very, very happy to have you guys both on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Super excited to be here. Happy to be here. So today I wanted to talk a bit about the the increasingly popular method that people get fish into their homes. So this one is actually not necessarily for the anglers out there. This one is for everybody else who eats fish. And I'll be frank, as a guy who fishes quite a lot, I actually love these services because 
there are lots of really amazing fish and seafood products that I just simply can't catch at all because they're just not something that you can do recreationally, or they are a product that is from another part of the country. So, I mean, for example, Jeffrey and I have worked together to get things like Royal Red Shrimp and things that are just not available easily on the Pacific Coast, which is where I live. And Natalie, you work with Alaskans Own, and that's out of Sitka, correct? Yes, it is. So that's a community-supported fishery, and we're going to get into that in a second. Yes, we're based out of Sitka. Perfect. And then, Jeffrey, uh, your organization is called eFish, and eFish is a direct-to-consumer outfit, right? Yeah, that's correct. We're really more of a direct-to-consumer marketplace, and we help small, independent family fishermen to ship their products really anywhere throughout the lower 48 states. Let's start with that. So both you guys really are trying to do right by the small family fishermen. So basically kind of operations like I do uh, up in Alaska with the fishing vessel Heather Ann, it's just me and the guy who owns it, a guy named Tyson Fick, and we gillnet salmon on a very small basis and it's part of a co-op. And to me, it sounds a lot like what's going on in plant-based agriculture and even livestock on land where there are people who are doing things the right way and there are people who are been in this industry for generations and generations. And then it's that pitted against kind of the mega companies. And from the way I can suss it out from what you guys do and what others do in your space is you're trying to help the smaller fishing families stay in business and get a leg up. So I kind of want to start with Natalie because I think your organization is considerably older and Tell us about Alaskan Zone and how it started and what the goal is. Sure thing. So Alaskan Zone is actually a program of several nonprofits. Um, and it's a nonprofit itself, actually. Um, it's a program of the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, as well as our partner organization, the Alaska Sustainable Fisheries Trust. And initially, it was created about 12 years ago to help make Alaska seafood more accessible to Alaskans, which is Hard to come by, believe it or not, sometimes. Um, and it's also goal was to help Alaska fishermen make a fair wage. And the reason that we're a little bit more unique and different is that 100% of Alaskans' own seafood sales goes towards projects that help support conservation of Alaska's fisheries. Um, they help to create an equitable fishery and access and also provide healthy seafood to communities in need. So, um, We've been a leader in this. We were the first um, CSF in the state of Alaska. And we focus most of our customers, at least part of our monthly share and our CSF share model, are communities in Alaska. And then we also, a few years ago, started um, it up in Seattle as well. Um, and then on top of that, too, we do do um, direct and custom orders and bulk orders to all over the lower 48 as well. Hmm. So talk to me a bit about um, <laughs> the not terribly surprising, but yet still surprising fact that Alaska seafood can be sometimes hard to find in Alaska. Because what's ironic is, as I see this with agricultural uh, products all over the, really all over the world, but definitely all over the United States, where, for example, if you're down in the southern Louisiana and you're looking for to get like cane sugar syrup, good luck. And even though that's where pretty much all of it is made. So it's, it's kind of an, uh, an irony of agriculture where it's made is not necessarily where it's eaten. So how does that happen? What's going on? 
Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, I live in Sitka, which is a small, you know, community in Southeast Alaska. And if you don't have a boat, you're kind of out of luck. Um, I mean, you can obviously go to the local market and there are processors you can buy fish from, but um, it's just harder to access. And we don't have it necessarily, at least here in many Southeast communities, you can't just go down to the dock and purchase from the dock. And so um, we kind of saw that as a need and wanted to be able to provide, you know, fresh Alaskan seafood and to, you know, consumers. And it's seasonal seafood. And we provide, like I said, monthly shares to our customers based on what's coming in at the time. Um, and then we did sort of extend to the larger model where, you know, we have larger seafood orders that we can ship anywhere. Um, but I mean, one interesting fact is that like less than 1% of the fish that's caught in Alaska actually stays in Alaska. And I guess that's part of why we created this model too. And, you know, 90% of the seafood is locally consumed, but a lot of it's shipped, you know, out. And we bring in so much other seafood, like 80% of the seafood we're eating actually is imported. Wait, wait, wait. So, so seriously, wait. Okay. I guess so we saw Alaska, that it's a true 80%, need. Let me, 80% of... <laughs> of <laughs> and maybe my facts are a little off, but... Still, but I mean, like, even if it's to 51%, of more than half of the seafood that Alaskans eat mm-hmm. is not from Alaska? That's just, that's madness. Right. Well, and it's, I think this is a statistic from all of America, like 80%, and maybe this has changed, but 80% of the seafood consumed in America is imported. So we're trying to change that model and trying to, you know, bring in more focus, obviously, on local, that local's been popular for a while, but just really um, making locally harvested seafood available. And that's what we're working with. We're working with local Alaskans and trying to get that fish from our small boat fishing fleet to other Alaskans. So, okay, so I live in Juneau, for example, and I'm a member of your CSF. So walk me through, like, what does it look like for a consumer? Well, we start sort of pushing it out, advertising our shares, you know, early part of the year. And we're signing people up, you know, preseason sales, which helps us to sort of fund our program um, throughout the season. Um, and then we start our share distribution in May. And then our customers have the choice. And this year actually started something we have other shares available, but in the past, we've just done like a seafood variety, so a mix of whatever. This year, we're offering like a seafood variety, a whitefish share, and a salmon lover share. So if you don't really love salmon, then you don't have to get it in your share. Um, But starting in May, um, our customers can receive five or 10 pounds of seafood a month, and they can sign up for a four-month, a six-month, or an eight-month share. Um, And we have community coordinators in our five communities of um, Sitka, Juneau, Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Anchorage, and then, like I said, Seattle. And usually, you know, they're all frozen, you know, frozen portions, or between a half pound and a pound. And we just try to mix it up and kind of give people a variety of seafood each month. Right now, we're, of course, like waiting with bated breath to see what the king salmon returns were. I mean, it closed last night here in Southeast Alaska. So we're waiting to see, okay, what's going to happen? How much are we going to have available? What are the prices? All of that. And our consumers are waiting as well. <laughs> we have a lot of pre-orders. So that's kind of, you know, our typical model um, for the shares and the way we've been doing it for, like I said, 12 years. 
So it's basically like a CSA. In other words, you go to a spot every month and you pick up your box, right? Yes. Yeah. We don't home deliver just because we have quite a few customers in each community. Um, I actually helped with the Juno distribution last week. And yeah, it's a lot of fun to make those connections, meet people, see them face to face. Um, we also have the option, we have like something called add-ons. So if someone, you know, in addition to their five pound share per month wants to get extra halibut or whatever we happen to have in stock, they can get that as well. Yeah. And then we also, you know, we use that opportunity to really educate our consumers and customers about um, what's happening in small scale fisheries, what sort of work that our organizations are involved in and how they can be a part of that as well. So Jeff, so eFish is fairly new, um, but it follows a similar model in the sense that the goal is to get what small fishing families and small boats produce directly to a consumer. So tell me a little bit about your background and then why jump into this market? You're in a fairly crowded market in terms of there's a fair bit of competition for this particular market. And tell me why does eFish exist? How did it start? And what sets you apart from some of the other companies? Yeah. So for me, like, I jumped into this industry more from the recreational fishing side of things. To be honest, I grew up hating seafood. I didn't like eating seafood, but I loved going fishing. I loved catching fish. And I remember my parents sat me down one day and they told me, Hey, if you're going to go out fishing in Baja and catching you know, beautiful yellowfin tuna and Wahoo and Dorado, you're going to have to start eating it. We can't just keep giving this away to family members. Um, and so that's when I gave it a try and realized that I didn't, actually hate seafood. I actually just didn't like the seafood I was getting at a local supermarket or whatever was put in front of me because it just wasn't considered fresh. And so that was like my very early, like first encounter with the seafood supply chain and some of the ways that it's inefficient and broken. Um, and I was living out in the Northeast and, you know, was, was in Gloucester, which is one of the main hubs for the bluefin tuna fishery out there. And I just remember talking with fishermen and seeing those fish get on a plane, go to Japan and hearing about stories of how New York City restaurants would then be buying that same product and flying it back to the United States. And Boston and New York City are not far away for those of you that don't know. Like the trip from Boston to Japan and back to New York City is absolutely mind blowing when the reality is that New York City should have this local product very easily accessible right to them. Well, not for um, nothing. So I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and we used to catch big eye and, and yellowfin and bluefin tuna like in Jersey. Like we could basically see New York Harbor when we were coming back to port. Right. And there's amazing local fisheries aside from from the bluefin fishery as well. Right. Um, and so it's just there needs to be easier access to these locally sourced products. And we need to educate consumers, and I'm mainly talking about restaurants right now, but also the at-home consumer to consume more domestic products. And that's where at the time I was in graduate school at MIT and always wanted to launch my own company. And, you know, I happened to cross paths with my partner, Matthew Henderson, who's been in the industry for nearly two decades um, and that's when we decided to try something new and help to empower these smaller harvesters and seafood wholesalers to build their own brands, right? If you're going to take better care for your product, you deserve to get paid a higher wage for that. It's that simple. But because this product has been commoditized to such a level where all halibut are created equal, 
it's really hard for these fishermen who, who take better care of their product to get paid more for it. And so we wanted to build a platform where that basic incentive could exist. Um, and that's where eFish really started. And of course, we launched pre-pandemic. We were originally a marketplace connecting these harvesters to fine dining restaurants. Mm. Um, and we launched March 1 of 2020. Uh, <laughs> all, all excited to, to go disrupt the restaurant industry with this. And uh, we were shocked, right? Like, obviously, two weeks later, New York City shut down. And New York City was the first city that we were, of course, shipping to. And we had to reevaluate everything. And we saw the same fishermen that we were moving scallops and oysters to New York City with, they were pulling their boats out of the water. They were telling us that they're going to wait this thing out and we're just going to wait and see what happens. And it was in that moment where I realized that, you know, if they truly pulled their boats out of the water and waited, it would be devastating for them. Um, and so at the time I was still in school and I just started reaching out to all of my classmates. I sent, um, you know, a WhatsApp message to the entire MIT campus. It made its way over to the Harvard campus. And within an hour and a half, I'd sold uh, nearly a hundred boxes of oysters, clams, and mussels. And I just started hand delivering these things. And that's really where this all began. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flap pockets, and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. Were you not aware like that there are companies that have been doing this for probably 15 years, or, or did you know and you figured you could do it better? Yeah, I mean, at the time, we were really looking to do more of this marketplace play. I mean, when you talk to restaurant owners and chefs, they have to deal with so many different suppliers on a daily basis just to get product in the door. And so there was a lack of transparency in the products that are available and the price point that they're at. And so we wanted to really make that side of things a bit more efficient. And yeah, no, I was certainly familiar with CSF and how those type of operations existed in the past. Um, but I always felt like there was a lack of really telling the story of who the person is behind that product and truly telling the story of, you know, who, when, why, and, and how. Um, because I do think that that understanding all of those facets of the products that you eat, I feel like it makes it taste better, right? It's It's similar to, I don't know if you've ever grown like tomatoes in your backyard, like regardless of if they actually taste better or not, like you've put in the love so you can feel 
it's a completely different experience from buying a store-bought tomato. Well, I will actually carry on that analogy because, yeah, they do taste better for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because when you pick a tomato that you have grown, typically you're going to pick it exactly at the right time and you're going to then use it at exactly the right time. And one of the things yep. that I have liked about what you guys do at eFish and what a CSF does is – you know, Natalie, you're talking about the add-ons and the things that are special and are like, hey, we got this. So what you guys do, what I, what I appreciate is it's like a fire drill in a sense where if you're on the email list for eFish um, or for really any community-supported fishery, because keep in mind that while we're talking to Natalie Sattler of Alaska and Zone, there are community-supported fisheries all over the United States and not always just in salt water. There's a few in the Great Lakes as well. And I'm going to put in the show notes a links to as many community-supported fisheries that I can find. So one of the coolest things about all of this is that, you know, you'll get an email from eFish and it'll be like, hey, we got this right now. Do you want it? And it's going to come to you very, very quickly and in really, really good shape. And so it's not going to be 10 days old or seven days old. And it's going to be kind of that tomato, you know, right at its peak of freshness, which is kind of unusual in the industry. Yeah, it was one of the things where you build a product so that you would want. And for me, as a fisherman myself, I would only eat fish that I would catch because that was the only product that I could trust how it was catered for from the moment it was caught to the moment I cooked it. And so I'm trying to give other consumers that same access to that quality of product, regardless of if you're a fisherman or not, or if you're in a coastal city or not, you're still able to have that same access to high quality products. So I want to talk to both you guys about fresh versus frozen. People come to me and ask me questions about fish and seafood prep for decades now, because it's kind of what I do. I have found, and I think you guys are going to agree, is that both are fine depending on what you're dealing with. So walk me through all of the frozen fish that you guys are dealing with. So imagine, you know, somebody has just caught some Pacific halibut or salmon and they've come back to the dock. And then how does it get into the state that it is going to be when your customers pick it up? Okay. I'll do my best, but <laughs> I am not in the processing plant myself, but um, we work with, you know, a lot of local small processors um, in Sitka and one of them is a cooperative, the seafood producers cooperative. And sometimes we actually do buy directly from boats themselves, like FAS boats, et cetera. But um, you know, they offload obviously. And I guess I would say that most of the fish that we purchase comes like from the boats that are not, frozen at sea. So not the FAS boats that are just iced. And so they're offloaded. And this is the part where it might be a little fuzzy for me, but you know, they're in the processing plant and getting portioned and flayed and all of that um, and cut depending on the size of the fish and also the species and vacuum packed. We vacuum pack all our fish and then it's like frozen. And this is prior to me, but we did a big project um, a couple years ago called Frozen is Fresh. And we were really trying to promote that um, just because we're buying it early, we're freezing it and then distributing it to customers, you know, maybe throughout the month. So obviously we can't keep it fresh, but um, our fish are frozen in a way that preserves the freshness of the fish. And then, you know, you get to enjoy the flavor of it. Um, 
And so the off flavors that might develop in a fresh piece of fish that's, you know, sometimes one to two weeks old or sitting in your freezer. Um, and it also helps to reduce fish waste. And so obviously that's good for many reasons in our marine ecosystems, but also it helps our consumers to save money and for us to save a little money too. There have been like <clears throat> quite a few studies, it seems like lately, that we have been involved in and others where they're testing, you know, the quality of the fish, frozen versus fresh. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Keith Cox, who is, con what is it? consumer analytics out of Juno. He's got a device, he's testing sort of the body fat and the quality of each fish and working with a lot of processors. And um, yeah, so, the, and I'm actually also on an advisory committee with a bunch of folks from all over the Pacific Northwest. And we are starting to do some testing around different species of fish and which ones last the longest frozen and the best cuts and all of that. So it's quite interesting to kind of, once you delve into it, to see, you know, that actually frozen, it can be great quality, especially if taken care of and, and when it comes right off the boat. And that's my point. So the point I wanted to make is, and I think all three of us know the science, but I want to hear it from you, Natalie. So the freezing process that's done in Alaska, uh, not necessarily talking about FAS, which is frozen at sea, because that's very, very, those are pretty, pretty narrow products that are mm -hmm. actually frozen at sea. But the mm -hmm. process of freezing in Alaska and in the, there are a few other places like Gloucester's got one, um, Maine has a few. And there, there are some places that are doing this where it's like next gen freezing. But I don't think a lot of our listeners might know exactly, well, how is it different from what you would do at home? Well, from my understanding, when they're taken off and obviously filleted and cut and all of that, they are flash frozen or blast frozen. And the frozen seafood is like rapidly cooling it so that these icicles form and they're so small that they don't rupture the cell membrane. And they're freezing the fish at minus 20 core temperature, which is proven to freeze the bacterial degradation process. Um, and it's more efficient. And so then, you know, this frozen fish can be shipped on a barge or a truck or flown, et cetera. And it just, it makes it more efficient. It can last longer in those type of transportation uh, methods. And, you know, we don't have to like sell it like that day. So I think a big reason why we were trying to promote frozen as fresh was just to decrease the waste fish and, you know, just making it less vulnerable to the whims of the supply chain, wherever it may be going. Exactly. I mean, this is what I talk um, to you about with consumers where yeah, see what else. I'm just, the, yeah. the blast chilled fish. So it's blast chilled fish is either somewhere between 20 below zero and 40 below zero. And there are blast chillers that are even colder than that. So the general science is this, the colder you freeze and the quicker you freeze something, the smaller those ice crystals that form inside the cell walls and the less moisture loss you're going to get when the thing thaws out. So everybody out there who's ever thawed anything, you're going to notice that the blood is what everybody calls it with meat. And you'll see this fluid that comes out with fish. And that's the moisture from that fish flesh or meat or whatever leaking out because all of those cell walls have been ruptured. And the hugest difference, and, and Natalie, you mentioned the bacterial issue, and that's very true because if there were bacteria or a parasite or anything in fish flesh, um, typical home freezers are only semi-okay at killing that because a lot of home freezers don't go below zero. 
a lot of people don't know that. And even the good ones typically don't go below negative 10 and negative four is about the typical industry average with a kitchen freezer. Chest freezers get to negative 10 or below, but nothing is like these blast chillers. So that colder, quicker freezing, when it's thawed, results in a much better product than, than anything that you can do at home. And I want to introduce one little trick that you guys may or may not know about when you do thaw a piece of frozen fish. You take it out of the plastic. If it's vac sealed or if it's not vac sealed, it doesn't matter. You take it out of its packaging that it was in the freezer. You wrap that piece of fish or seafood in paper towels and you put it into a container and just let it sit in your refrigerator. Now, this does require a day, sometimes 36 hours to thaw out, but that's how you want to do it. You do not want to thaw fish or seafood quickly because you get much more quality loss if you do that. But by wrapping it in the paper towels, when those paper towels get damp, you then change the paper towels. And so any fluid loss that you're getting from those ruptured cell walls will be absorbed by the paper towels. And what the paper towels take with them is any off aromas that you might have. Now, this is a much smaller problem with the blast chilled seafood that we're talking about, but with home frozen stuff. So if, for example, you bought something from eFish, but you couldn't eat it all and you wanted to freeze it and you have to freeze it in your own freezer, vacuum seal it. And this is true with any angler as well. Vacuum seal it, vacuum seal it, vacuum seal it. I can't stress that enough. And no, no vacuum seal company is paying me to say that. Um, and then when you thaw it, do this paper towel trick and it eliminates virtually all aroma, which is kind of a miraculous thing. Yeah. I mean, when I have a fresh piece of fish as well, I like to do that too. Um, like when I get a fresh piece of, of yellowfin or big eye, um, like I wrap it in paper towel and the colors that come out of it after that process is, you know, I, I do that with every piece of fish now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are becoming more aware that it's, a, it's counterintuitive, but fish and water don't mix. You want to use as little water as possible when you're processing fish. Now, if you use saltwater to saltwater fish, that's fine, and freshwater to freshwater fish, that's fine, and saltwater to freshwater fish, that's fine. But you want to keep your fish dry is, I guess, the point. And, you know, wiping them down and using a little bit of water here and there to clean up blood spots and whatever. But yeah, dry, dry, dry. And and it's funny because um, a generation ago when I was young, everyone's like, oh, just soak it in water or soak it in salt water or freeze it in blocks of water. Um, that was always a good one. Like, you guys ever remember the get old milk cartons and freeze your fish in the milk carton completely surrounded by water? Have you ever seen that one? I have not. Mm. That sounds crazy, though. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's, it's no, nice. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a freshwater deal that you see a lot in the Midwest and it's old timer. Like no, almost nobody does it because who needs a milk carton sized block of ice with fish inside it in their freezer. So I want to talk. I know. Right. So I want to talk about um, one thing that is kind of cool that both of you had the ability to do put your consumers, put your, your CSF customers or your online customers, both in restaurants and the regular community, you could put them in front of fish that they may not be aware of. And one of the flags that I fly high is to love the unloved. And that is to feature 
fish that you may not have heard of or animals that you may not have heard of or plants that you may not have heard of. And I have been Mr. Bycatch and Mr. Bait Eater for pretty much my entire life. And I love the idea of, you know, I, I noticed this specifically with e-fish where, hey, we've got random small fish. Hey, we've got weirdo bycatch and here's what you do with it. <laughs> and, and I'm fascinated by it, but I want to hear from you, Jeffrey. Um, how's that been received? You know, it's pretty amazing what happens when you give consumers that option. I mean, I feel like most consumers have grown accustomed to like the core staple seafood items because that's what's in front of them. But we have a large population here in the United States that, you know, maybe they moved here from Europe or maybe they're from South America or maybe they've grown up in island nation that's more accustomed to eating smaller fish. And so we sell anchovies, we sell whole mackerel, we sell products that, like you said, are underloved and customers love it. And in a lot of instances, it makes them feel like they're like they're back at home in some sense that like, that's like a quote that I have from one of my customers um, because it's just products that they're not able to get elsewhere. And there's a major education gap in helping our customers along the way and what we call along the seafood journey. Um, but we feel like there's such a major opportunity to help customers along the way to learn what to do with each of these products and to diversify the species that they're eating. Cause the more that we can reduce pressure on some of these main species of seafood, um, the better because at the end of the day, if everybody only wants to eat salmon, then we've got an issue on the salmon side of things. Um, and so if we can start to support some of these underloved species, then I think it's, it's better all around for the environment. Natalie, what, how, do you, how do you guys fit in on that? Do you guys offer uh, some of the less famous uh, things other than so, you know, you got your triplet of salmon, you know, and, and as we all know, there's five species of Alaska salmon, but typically most places will do sockeye, kings, and cohos. Obviously Pacific halibut. And what else? What are your other offerings? And do you have some of the more offbeat stuff that you offer that you have found that your customers really like? Yes. Yeah. And we are always trying to diversify and add more different species and unique things to the mix. But um, in addition to the seafood that you mentioned, we also provide um, lingcod, which some people may or may not know, and it kind of looks like a underwater sea monster. Um, <laughs> my son just caught one the other day that was 35 pounds and like three feet long. So that's a nice one. Um, it's kind of fun to show those and sell those to our customers. Um, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then, you know, rockfish, which, you know, most people know it's just a mild white fish but there are so many species of rockfish and so it it is also kind of fun and interesting to educate our consumers about that and sort of getting them a little bit more information about where these fish come from what their habitat is like um, and rockfish you know is typically like a bycatch fish um, for a lot of fishermen up here and so um you know, we really try to utilize it and market and not have it become fish waste or anything like that. And it's actually a fan favorite of many of our customers. 
Um, and then these are becoming a lot more popular, unfortunately, because they're hard to get your hands on now, but black cod tips. Um, so we also sell black cod or sable fish, which is like so good and buttery and delicious. Um, but the tips night. or the collars, you know, come from the throats of the black cod. Oh, they're so good. Um, but now it's like everybody else is caught on. And it used to be something, you know, you, a fisherman would just keep that. They get the heads back from the totes um, once they sell their fish. But now the processors want to keep them and they're, and they're selling them. And, you know, they're just becoming much more popular. But um, they're one of the tastiest things I've ever had. Um, we've been doing, you know, of course, smoked salmon is not like a specialty on, but we're just trying to diversify and work with more local um, businesses and organizations within Southeast Alaska. So trying to do that. We also do spot prawns, which is, you know, again, seasonal. We purchase, you know, several thousand pounds, like in October, right after the fishery closes and they sell within, you know, a short amount of time. Um, and then we have to wait again, <laughs> but um, those are pretty popular as well. So, you know, quite a variety. And again, it's somewhat seasonal. So depending on what's coming in at that time um, and, you know, what we have sort of in season or in stock from the previous year. Hey, let's take a quick break because you are already listening to Jeffrey Ted Mori of eFish. So there is no need for a big giant ad this time because... You're either going to like eFish after listening to this podcast or you're not. But what I wanted to do is give you the opportunity to get a discount off your first order if you work with eFish. So the trick is to go to eFish.com, that is e-fish.com, and you will get $15 off your first order if you use the checkout code HuntGatherTalk. And that's HuntGatherTalk, all one word, is the checkout code to get $15 off your first order with eFish. And again, that is e-fish.com. I think Alaskans understand seasonality with fish and seafood a bit more than probably anybody else. I mean, there could be some smaller communities elsewhere in the United States that are, you know, certainly coastal communities will say, oh, it's snapper season or, or, oh, it's time for Royal Reds or, oh, whatever. But I think the concept or the reality, really, of seasonality with seafood is something that has missed the American consumer. And Jeffrey, you kind of deal with this with some frequency, don't you? Yeah, on a daily basis. Our website, if you look at it today, it's going to look very different than it does tomorrow. And that's because we're constantly working with fishermen to see what they're catching on that given day and helping them move it as fast as possible. Um, and that comes back to the whole consumer education piece where we're trying to help our customers better understand that, okay, spot prawn season's ending in a month or two, buy some now, support that fisherman today before they're gone. Cause I assure you, you're going to miss them until they open back up again, six months from now. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what's, the beauty of this country and the business that we're in where we're able to work with fishermen throughout the entire country is that when one season closes, another one opens. And, you know, it's not a matter of focusing your diet around one species. It's a matter of, you know, have seafood as a main staple in your weekly diet and fill it with whatever's in season. So a piece to that is seafood in your weekly diet. And a lot of health officials were like, yes, we should eat more seafood and that should be part of our daily diet and da, da, da. The sort of the fact is, unless you're an angler, let's face it, seafood is not as cheap as, say, chicken or pork or farmed salmon. 
a CSF and a service like eFish or others, they're not cheap. So I guess if you're out there listening, basically, how do you convince somebody that, oh, I should get something through eFish or through a CSF uh, rather than, you know, Southeast Asian shrimp that are $5 a pound or swai or something like that. And it's a bit like an, the elephant in the room where it's like, yes, we talk about all the stuff. Yes, it's amazing. And yes, it's all of the good things, but it's not cheap. So how do you sell that to a consumer? And let's start with Natalie. Well, I guess we try to emphasize that you're paying for high value and quality. And we try to make it, you know, somewhat approachable and reachable um, for our consumers. You know, our prices are pretty good compared to many um, CSFs. And I guess the fact that we are doing frozen, you know, that helps cut down a bit on our costs too. Um, And we're like sending our bulk orders to these communities once a month, which helps, you know, save on the shipping as well. I mean, we try to make it as accessible to our consumers as possible. Um, that is also why we do like a high value and a low value fish each month. It helps us keep the cost down, but it also helps it like be approachable for our consumers. And we try to really just like maintain, you know, sort of our prices don't go up a whole lot. I mean, but we do have to kind of pay attention, of course, to what's going on at the docks and pricing it appropriately. But we try to stay competitive, of course, you know, with what the local supermarkets are selling it for as well. Um, Yeah, but I think we just try a bunch of different things to try and make it work for everybody. And then, like I said before, all of our profits go back into our program to sort of support sustainable fisheries and our seafood donation program. Um, So we're not in it to like make a profit just to (laughs) bring home and we're in it to like try to keep these other programs going so in some ways you could kind of describe any community supported fishery as a little bit like the npr of fish and seafood sales yeah yeah i get that Mm -hmm. so jeff i think uh one of the things that marks i mean tell me i'm wrong but I, i i get the sense that you're selling to a consumer who cares more about quality than they care about price point Yeah, in a lot of cases, that's definitely true. But I think that there's also an aspect of it where, and going back to the the piece around, like, how do you compare these local domestic products to products that are getting imported? It's so hard for a consumer to make those choices because it is an elephant in the room, right? And it's similar to any other industry when you compare to USA-made versus an imported product you really have to turn a blind eye when you're buying products that are getting imported. There is a lot of controversy around fisheries from abroad, both from a social labor perspective to environmental issues with regard to overfishing and regulations to where it becomes really hard to look at those low price points as being reality. Um, and you know, that's easy for me to say on my soapbox of privilege or whatever it might be to be able to have that choice. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that customers should always question when they see, you know, products in a fish market for three ninety nine a pound that, you know, traveled, you know, halfway across the world to get there. Um, but yeah, in short, like our customers certainly do 
pay a premium for that higher quality product. And they care about that above anything else because this is a product that's going in their body and it's an experience that they like to enjoy. Um, and so they're willing to pay a bit of a premium for that. But one of the things that I will say is that seafood doesn't have to be expensive, right? Like working with local CSFs where you're able to get boxes that are in bulk that are frozen that you can fill your freezer with, like that is an affordable way to eat seafood on a regular basis that's affordable. Um, so I think that there are ways to do it. And I think that it's just a matter of shifting the consumer's mindset from viewing seafood as always this luxury good, right? Like you're having a big swordfish steak or a lobster dinner. Like having rockfish for dinner is a protein that is good for you, that doesn't break the bank. You know, nothing's comparable to swai that's getting imported in, but I think it's comparable to any other USA made poultry beef or whatever it might be. So this kind of brings up another little piece to this. Uh, so Natalie, you're kind of out on this one because by law, every fishery in Alaska has to be sustainable. It's in your state's constitution. So I think, you know, I'm talking to the listeners right now. If you buy Alaskan, you're buying sustainable, like period, full stop. So the advantage of what I have said in my book, Hook, Line, and Supper, and I, I will say to anybody who's listening that if you buy Alaska, you buy American, you catch it yourself. Those are, generally speaking, the best ways to, as a consumer, feel decent about your purchases in seafood. So we have stronger regulations in the United States than most other countries do, certainly that do in the Southeast Asia. So the sustainability issue is kind of a weedy subject. And the Alaskans have kind of dealt with it by just enshrining it in their constitution. Like all those fisheries are very, very heavily regulated. Less so in the lower 48, but still we're in a decent position. And, and I want to hear your opinion on this one, uh, both Natalie and Jeff. But I want to ask you first, Jeffrey, is it fair, like from a company position, does eFish like look heavily at the sustainability of the products that it buys? And I ask that question because it occurs to me that what you're doing is a way for a consumer to kind of set it and forget it. So in other words, like if I buy something through eFish, then I know it's going to be sustainable and I know it's going to be American and I know it's going to be high quality. And I just kind of like to hear you talk about that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the way that we view it, so we do feel very good about the sustainability of the fisheries here in the United States. And that's largely attributed to how highly regulated the fisheries are out here, right? You have observers on the boats, you have boats being tracked with GPS, you have uh, quotas uh, with regard to each species that's being caught. Um, so it's gotten to the point where these harvesters are getting regulated to the point where it almost doesn't even make economic sense for them. But the good news is that that means that we are able to feel a bit more comfortable about the products that we're consuming. At eFish, we go one layer deeper and we really try to look at working with the boats that are smaller in the fleet, that are using the gear types that are going to be less destructive to the environment, and working with the people that share a similar ethos around catching what you need rather than catching everything. Um, and so what I mean by that is our fishermen understand that taking better care of fewer product is ultimately going to make them more money in the long term. Not everybody feels that way. Um, some folks feel like 
in order to make the most amount of money, they have to extract everything as possible, even if that means that it's to the detriment of that product's quality. And so we really like to make sure that the fishermen we work with share that ethos, are using the right gear type, are on a smaller vessel to ensure that we really are going above and beyond with regard to that environmental sustainability. Of course, from the social sustainability point of view, like American workers are held by American labor laws. And so we do feel good about supporting those type of workers as well. I have a friend who's a hog farmer in Michigan and he and his wife raises amazing quality pigs, but you know, they don't raise tons of them and they make way more money doing what they do with their small operation than they would if they sold their pigs on the commodity market. So if any of you out there are kind of familiar with that paradigm where you go to the farmer's market, you buy from a farmer who's spending a lot more time and effort to raise quality livestock, I can only tell you that in my experience, and I'm sure all of your anglers in Alaska, Natalie, are like this too. So I fished for Taku River Reds in Juneau. And Taku River Reds, it's a small collective of small boats. There's only two or three of us on each boat and they're small gill netters and we're taking care of every single fish that comes overboard. Now, what we do with that particular fishery is we troll dress, which is to say we bleed head and gut and remove the kidney. Lots of places in Alaska do that, but what we do that is a bit above and beyond, you know, only a few fisheries do this, is we pressure bleed all our salmon. So, what that does is you stick a, a needle that squirts salt water into the main artery of the fish and it flushes the whole fish. So there's zero blood left in it. And the quality that is resulted from that is profound. A pressure blood fish thawed out uh, after it's been blast frozen is virtually identical to one that's been fresh. And anybody of you out there who have cooked thawed salmon and you have that salmon smell in your kitchen, you don't get that with any pressure blood fish. And I think pretty sure Copper River invented it and there's a few fisheries that work with it. Um, but my point is, is not to necessarily beat the drum of Taku River Reds, although that's always nice. My point is this. So because we're taking so much care with every given fish, that fish is worth so much more to us on the boat than, for example, another gill netter who could be fishing the same water so as us who is just selling fish on ice. They're still good fish. They're still in good shape, but they're not taking that extra, extra effort to make this fish as good as it possibly can be. And so that, yes, our fish is more expensive, but our fish is so much better. I'll be happy to say this. Our fish is so much better than a Bristol Bay per seine fish. It's not even the same fish. And you've encountered pressure blood fish, Natalie. I mean, what would you say about that? A lot of our fishermen, that is what they do. They pressure bleed their fish here. And all of the salmon that we purchase is trilline caught, you know, whether it's king or coho. We are just getting into the sockeye market. You know, I'm not quite sure where we're going to go there, but um, we are purchasing like some massive amounts of chum and pinks from boats here. And we even have fishermen that are doing true line caught for those, which is a lengthy process um, because there's just more of them out there. And yeah, you can see the quality and you definitely can taste it and smell it. And I think it's just worth it. We are really trying to encourage our customers to learn about that. And we try to share that information so they understand 
you know, wow, this great fish and the process going through, that's worth paying for, you know, and it's important to sort of share that. I mean, some people don't maybe care about the ins and outs, but I think we do have a lot of people, especially here in Alaska, who really want to understand, like our customers up in Fairbanks, where, you know, they probably don't get to fish a whole lot, um, but they really want to get their hands on Alaskan fish and understanding the whole process of from you know boat to table and what it's going through they're really interested in that um, and then of course we want to really also educate them and talk them about like safeguarding our sustainable fisheries and supporting these small boat fishermen and why it's important you know to kind of keep these small boats on the water and keeping our oceans healthy too like we spend a lot of time talking about that too um, and climate change of course and all of that and how it's all interconnected I don't know. It's just a good opportunity to share a lot of those messages with our customers. Well, awesome. Before I let you guys go, I definitely want to say thank you. And I also want to hear from both of you, like, cause I bet you there are things that I don't even know that I should know about your operations. And more importantly, it doesn't matter what I know and what I don't know. What matters is what the people listening to this should know about what should you know if you wanted to get involved with a community supported fishery? I mean, uh, again, I'm going to put a, as comprehensive a list as I can in the show notes for this of where a CSF is. So number one, Natalie, where would you find a CSF if you are listening to this right now? So what's a good way to sort of seek out one and B, what else do they need to know um, if they're going to get involved in an organization like that? Well, one great resource and you probably know about it, is localcatch.org, and it has many of the CSFs um, throughout the United States located on there. And so that's a great way to sort of find out if there's one near you um, and link up to, you know, their website and what they provide and all of that. And so we are all about, you know, sharing the love, and we just think it's such a great model, and we hope, you know, if there's one near somebody – or you can be a part of one. I mean, there's lots of CSF models where people are having them shipped, you know, to the interior or wherever, <laughs> you know, the Midwest. So I think if you support local fisheries, even if you're not near an ocean, um, I think that's great and um, a good way to get involved and, you know, eat healthy protein. And, you know, we want people to get involved too, just to sort of support healthy oceans, however they want to do that, whether it's just purchasing fish and feeling good about that or going to a different level and trying to um, see how they can be a part of future conservation and advocacy and all of that. Like there's so many different ways that people can get involved and um, we just want to, yeah, share that message and give people good food as well. So, Jeff, um, what do people need to know if they're going to listen to this and then they're going to say, hey, I want to get involved in one of these direct-to-consumer operations, whether it's eFish or another one, what should they know to meet their own expectations and also to be a smarter consumer? Yeah, I think the easiest way to be a, a more conscious consumer, especially when it comes to seafood, is just ask questions, right? Whether it's your local fishmonger, your local CSF, um, if it's an online operation like eFish, ask questions, reach out to the customer support line, see how they respond to your questions. Because I tell you, one of the best ways that I personally learn about the people I'm buying seafood from is just by asking questions and by gauging how they answer them, what answers they have, what answers they don't have. 
Um, Cause I really do believe that um, the folks that don't have answers to a lot of these questions, whether it's around where it was caught, how long ago it was caught, was it caught and processed in the USA? Like, if you don't have the answers to these questions in one way or another, then it's possible that that's not really a part of how they're sourcing their products. And so I'm not here to, to bang the drum and tell you to come buy fish at eFish, but pressure test us, ask us questions about the products that we sell, because that's why we're in business. We're in business to empower the fishermen that we work with, to pay them a higher wage for their higher quality products and to educate consumers. So you actually know what you're eating. Um, because at the end of the day, I think that's what we all deserve. Well, this has been great, guys. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. And I will put all of the links and all of the – I end up you know, going through the transcript of this and, and, and making sure that everybody listening to this can get on the show notes and get all of the information that you guys are putting out. Uh, I know it can be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, but it is what it is. So – Thank you guys for coming on, um, and I look forward to being in Alaska and getting some more weird and unusual stuff from eFish. So thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, as always, for spending some of your day with me. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this is the podcast Hunt, Gather, Talk, sponsored by eFish and Filson. Hopefully you enjoyed it and maybe considering looking into some of these options for your own fish and seafood needs. As always, you can find me on Instagram at HuntGatherCook. I am quite active there. And the core of what I do is my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is easily reached by HuntGatherCook.com. And there you will find literally thousands of recipes and techniques and tutorials on how to work with wild foods ranging from venison to wild fish to seafood to small game to ducks to wild edible plants and mushrooms. It is the core of what I do and has been all the way back to 2007. So I hope you spend some time on the website and I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, Please uh, drop me a note in some of the comment sections and I will respond. So until next time, I am Hank Shaw. I am really glad that you have spent some time with us. And please, if you are so inclined, subscribe to this podcast in whatever format that suits you. And maybe if you like, give us a review. So talk to you soon. Good luck out in the wild. Eat well and have fun.